The sun is shining. The frost was on the pumpkin a little bit, but uh, but my I think my tomato plants survived. My broccoli's starting to head up. It's 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 a good day, and it's a good day to be here to worship God. Uh, if you are visiting with us here this morning, I'm Pastor Joe. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you're looking for a good church, this is a good one. Uh, it's not a perfect church, uh, but it's a good church uh, and a church where uh, you could be part of a family of people. Uh, who will love you and care about you and who will pray for you and lift you up. And where you can learn the Bible and where you can uh, learn to walk in Christ's likeness and have a place to serve in ministry. And so if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, uh, you can your search can end right here. And I'm happy to tell you that. Um, we're going to look this morning at the longest speech in the entire book of Acts, uh, which is Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. And it's kind of his last words uh, before he is executed. And we're going to see that, too, at the end. Uh, so it's kind of a, it, I've called this, this, uh, this passage message and martyrdom. A message, and then they like his message so well, they take him out and turn him into a rock pile. And that is, that's, that's what we call an enthusiastic response. Okay. Uh, by the way, Jim, the uh, first rule when of holes is when you find yourself in one, stop digging. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, um, you're fired. <laughs> you are so fired. <laughs> but anyway, I'll probably hire you back later at reduced salary. But anyway, I want to talk about famous last words. Those may be mine. Um, <laughs> but uh, people like him better. Um <laughs> But uh, he's got a better, he's got a bigger dog. Um, <laughs> but um, I uh, want to talk about famous last words. And, and last words are important because our last words communicate things that we really value. You know, let me give you just a few examples. Uh, the Revolutionary War hero, Nathan Hale, right before he was hanged by the British for espionage against them, said, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. And I read that when I was a grade school kid, and I'm like, ooh, cool, you know. Great hero, great man. P.T. Barnum's last words were, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Seems a little maybe hard to figure in light of what's about to happen. Uh, Humphrey Bogart said, I never should have switched from scotch to martinis. Again, a little hard to figure in light of what he's going through. The old Confederate general, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, said, let us pass over the river and rest in the shade of the trees. He was a Christian. And he knew, even though he had taken a bullet by his own troops, that someday he was going to pass over the river and go into the presence of God. And he invited his men to follow him. And here in... Here in Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen's last words. The last words that he spoke before he went into the presence of God. So I want to read these for you. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll just tell you, uh, buckle your seatbelt. This is a long passage just to read, okay? Um, we're going to do a long passage and a short message, all right? So here we go. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, while he lived in, in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. And when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. And as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. That time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize God was using him to rescue them, but he did, that they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in a desert near Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and as he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their, ground, their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses who they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. 
through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the, sh- the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joseph brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. Remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we see this great example of Stephen who was bold in the proclamation of the gospel, even though it cost him his life, and with his last words prayed like Jesus, that you would forgive even those who kill him. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you might make it clear to us how we are to obey and how we are to walk before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Now, as I said before, this is the longest speech by anybody that Luke records in Acts, and it's probably, even at that, a compressed version. 
uh, the speeches that are that are given, uh, Luke's style is to take is to take kind of the heart and the meat out of the speech, and to condense it down to give to give us as readers a flavor for what's there. But this is probably a much longer discourse that he gives. Uh, could have been an hour or maybe even longer. The other thing you need to know about this speech is that Stephen is using a very uh, a very Asian Middle Eastern way of communicating where. Until the very end, it's all indirect communication where you're never coming straight on at somebody with your point because he wants to get, he wants them to kind of draw some conclusions along the way. And so he's leaving them the breadcrumb trail right up till where, he's, where he whacks them with, you people who are stiff-necked with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now that's, that's what we call direct communication. <laughs> all right? Um, is he's leaving very little room for misunderstanding on what he talk, what he's talking about there. But all along the way, he's using indirect communication and, and helping them to see some things. Uh, and I want to make his indirect communication a little more explicit for us um, as we go along through this passage. And, and we're not going to go verse by verse. Uh, we would be here all day if we went through 60 verses. Uh, so we're not going to do that. But I want to identify some themes for you. Uh, that are here and give you some examples from the text, but also uh, recognize that this is this is Stephen's response to accusations and charges that are very very similar to the ones that Jesus was accused of and was executed for. Uh, if you go back to chapter six, and you see uh, verse. Um, Verse 13 and 14, the charges against him. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say this Jesus will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So the accusation is, is that he's, he's a lawbreaker who, who's not going to obey the law of Moses and who's encouraging other people to break the law. And he's also standing against the temple and looking forward to the day when Jesus eventually has the temple destroyed, which will happen. Uh, and this is a way of his response to do this. Um, but he's going to make several major points. And his first major point is that there is progress and change in God's program over time. In other words, that God works with groups of people and, and, and with different types of people even, in different ways as he's working out his goal of redeeming the world to himself. And in the process of doing that, there's progress and change along the way. Um, Let me give you some examples here. God calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia. Where's Mesopotamia? Anybody say Iraq? All right. Uh, He was living in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, and, And Abraham is not a Jew. Before Abraham... Uh, there are no Jews, right? Abraham himself is, is by ethnicity an Aramean, a Syrian, in other words. And God is, has been working with all the people on earth up to Abraham, but with Abraham he decides to take a different step and go a different direction and go, okay, well, none of the people on earth follow me in the way that I want, so instead of trying to make all the people on earth follow me, I'm going to create a people who are going to follow me, and I'm going to call them the Jews, or the Hebrews, or people of Israel. 
Uh, and so there, that in itself, just even the fact that God called Abraham out of an idol-worshiping nation is a change in how God had been doing things up to that point. Uh, n- another change, okay, that God called Abraham to go to a land that he would show him, remember? Uh, I, can't, I can't really imagine God telling me, go to a place you have never been with the, in the absence of all of your family. That's what he told him. And Abraham kind of slow walked his way there, but he got there eventually. Uh, after staying in Haran, he got called again out of Haran to go to the promised land. And while he was there, God made him another series of promises that he would have a child, that his child would produce descendants who would become a mighty nation, and they would possess this land. When Abraham dies, he has one legitimate kid, one illegitimate kid, and, and a concubine that he has a few other children with that become the nation of Midian. Uh, he, has the Ish, he has Ishmael, who becomes the, the Arab people, and he has Isaac, who has two sons, which is not exactly an overwhelming nation. Uh, and in the land, they own a cave to bury their dead people in. God is not exactly done everything that, that he was hoping and that he had promised. But God had made a change. And, and then God makes another change in that uh, Jacob, one of Isaac's two sons, has 12 boys. That's a better start. Uh, and one daughter. And, and the, the other 11 boys, or the other 10 boys, hate their youngest brother, Joseph. They sell him into slavery in Egypt to get rid of him. And God brings them out of the land that he promised them, which is a change, and makes them a nation, not in Israel, but in Egypt. And then he sends Moses to deliver them. And that's another change. And he brings the law, which is a change from what they've had before, and a tabernacle, which is a change, and then eventually a temple and a nation and a kingdom and promises that get fulfilled. Um. And, and his point is, is that, look, there's always been change, and God has always been working in different ways according to the need of the time. Even the tabernacle was temporary, right? That was the point of it, that you could set it up and take it down, and that God's dwelling would not always be in a tent, but one day would be permanent. But a lot of people must have thought it was going to be permanent because there are 500 years that separate Moses and David. And even David didn't get to build the temple, even though he wanted to. His son Solomon built it. And it took seven years for Solomon to build it, and then they finally got rid of the tabernacle. But there was progress and change along the way. Uh, Stephen's second major theme that he develops is that God's blessings aren't limited to just the promised land and just the temple area. And a lot of these folks that sat on the Sanhedrin opposed to him thought that that's all of the places that God was blessing. If you wanted to be blessed, you needed to live in the land. If you wanted to be really blessed, you needed to live in, the, in Jerusalem. If you wanted to be super blessed, you needed to be one of the religious people who ruled from the Temple Mount as the Sanhedrin. And they regarded themselves as the most holy, most um, well-regarded, most blessed of God people that there were. And Stephen's point is, is that God's blessings are not confined geographically. And he, he 
talks about how Abraham is called out of where? Out of Ur. Is that God's blessing? Yeah, it is. And, and he received the promises and the blessings of God there and also in Haran. Well, where's Haran? That's in Syria, not in the land of Israel. Uh, the patriarchs were blessed in Egypt with Joseph. It's in Egypt, not in Israel, that they became a nation. That mighty nation that went out, where did they come from? From 75 people who went down. Out came 600,000 men. A nation between probably a million and a half and two million people went out. Where did that happen? Not in Israel, in Egypt. Where did they get the Where did they get the law? Mount Sinai. Where's Mount Sinai? In Midian, in Arabia. Where did Moses get the call of God? In Midian, in Arabia. Where did they have the tabernacle where God appeared to them? In Arabia. God blessed outside of the land. And on top of that, even when the temple was finally built, somewhere around the, the nine, late 900s B.C., even that is not the place that confines God's presence and blessing. Because is God present outside of that temple? Yes. Because what does, what does the, and he quotes Isaiah here. He says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? In other words, if God is creator, you think that he's going to be really impressed with the building that we built? Seriously? <laughs> I mean, come on. The God who put galaxies out there that we can now see with the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, 300 million light years from here. We had the, we, we, the Hubble Telescope's been in the, been aloft for what, about 10 years? Something like that? We didn't know they were out there. Who knew they were out there? God did. Why do you put them out there? Because he likes it, apparently. There are stars out there that are so big that they can contain 25,000 of our sun, and we're going to build God a building to live in? I mean, that's the point of Isaiah. And Isaiah's prophecy echoes even Solomon's words, and I think Stephen is meaning to draw this connection between not only Isaiah, but between Solomon and his prayer of dedication that you read about in Second Chronicles. When Solomon dedicates the temple, he prays this way. He says, he says, what have I done that I might build a house that God might live in? Will God really come down and live in the house that I built? Seriously? God, God's blessing and his benefits and his promises and even his person are not limited to the land and the temple. They are meant to spread. And Stephen is in the process of spreading them as widely as possible. And finally, Stephen moves to his third and, and most hard-hitting theme. This is where he is really going to drill down with these folks. He says, look here. If you look at Israel's history, they have consistently over and over and over and over rejected God. And you, Sanhedrin, are rejecting God right now. 
when he's trying to do a new thing in our nation and our people. And you are in danger of being rejected by God for your rejection of him. That's that you uncircumcised hearts and ears, that part. Okay, But he's going to lead up to that with some other things. He mentions he mentions God's call to Abraham in Haran. What was he doing in Haran? God told him in Ur of the Chaldees, leave your people and your father's house and go to the land I will show you. He did not say, oh, by the way, take a little detour in Haran and hang out there until your father dies. That was nowhere in there. He said, leave your father and go directly to the land. Do not pass go, do not pass through Haran, do not collect $200. Okay, but Abraham stayed there. Why? Because he was disobedient. I mean, I don't know about you, but if God showed up and said, excuse me, um, this is what I would like you to do, I don't think I would, I would say, well, you know, I thought about it, and I decided maybe I would kind of slow walk that one. <laughs> and yet that's what Abraham does. He slow walks his obedience to God. Now, I say that, and then I think, oh, well, you actually, you've done that. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but Stephen's point is, is that the people of Israel have done that too. That they've slow walked their obedience to God. Okay. And then he moves on to Joseph. Now, what happened to Joseph? He got sold into slavery by his brothers. Was that, was that pleasing to God? Was that an example of great obedience on the part of the nation? No. And on top of that, as he's talking about Joseph, I think he's trying to draw a parallel between Jesus and Joseph. Because when did, uh, when, when, whenever Jesus got betrayed, what was he sold for? Who, who knows? 30 pieces of silver. What was 30 pieces of silver? Price of a slave. Jesus got sold for 30 pieces of silver, just like Joseph, sold as a slave. You know what else happened? The first time that Joseph was with his brothers, they didn't recognize him or who he was. But the second time that they saw him, they did. Notice any parallel? I think we're about to. I think we're about to see the return of Christ. And the second time he comes. Jesus' people will recognize him as their brother. By the way, the same thing happens with Moses. He brings up the incident with Moses, and Moses decides, you know, well, God has called me to be the deliverer, so he goes out delivering. (laughs) And he sees an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brothers and whacks him right there, buries him in the sand. I don't know how hard you have to hit to kill a guy on one on one swat, but it's pretty hard, apparently. And he kills the Egyptian. He's going to deliver the people, and he thinks they're going to rise up and follow me as the leader. And they don't. He's rejected. In fact, what's the one guy say to him? He's a slave, and here's the prince of Egypt, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, who comes along, and the, and the slave mouths back to him, who made you ruler and judge? Now, that's a little startling when you really think about it. But he was rejected. And, and they said, you know, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? He bugs out of town, goes and lives in Midian. 
and God brings him back. And the second time, they recognize him as the deliverer that he is, just like Jesus. And of course, and they follow Moses out of Egypt, right? Uh, you saw the movie. You know how this happened, right? Um, all right, Charlton Heston came, and they all went out, right? Um, no, Moses came, and he led them out of the, of the land of, Israel, of, of Egypt into the desert. And they, they heard the voice of God from Mount Sinai, and it was so terrible that they begged God, don't speak to us anymore. Tell Moses what you think and have Moses tell us. And even the elders of the people went up onto the mountain and it says that they, this is one of the most fascinating passages to me in the whole Testament. It says that they saw the feet of God. Why did they see his feet? Because when they came into the presence of God, that was all they could see. (laughs) Okay? They were just prostrate before God. And after all this has happened... They go, well, you know, Moses has been hanging out up there a while. Been up on that mountain now 40 days. We don't know what's happened to him. Make us gods, Aaron. And Aaron says, okay. (laughs) And he makes them a bull god to worship. And they engage in all this pagan revelry and worship and, and idolatry. And in fact, that idolatry gets planted there and it stays with the nation all through their history. And it gets, it starts out small. There's a little group of them in the desert. Worshipping Molech and Raphan and, and Ra and the gods of Egypt. And there's a group of them that are always saying it was better in Egypt. Better that we had died as slaves there than that we served the God in, God in freedom in the desert. And there was always a group wanting to go back to Egypt and where we sat around pots of meat and we ate leeks and garlic. Now, I don't know what their breath was like, but, but there was always a group of them that wanted to go back there and enjoy slavery. And Moses called him out and brought him into, brought him finally up to the edge of the promised land. Joshua brought him in. They carried the tabernacle with them. And even with that, they built a temple. And even the man who built the temple fell into idolatry. The nation followed into idolatry. And then they go into exile over idolatry. Why? Because consistently over and over and over, God would send his messengers and they would be rejected and rejected, and rejected, and rejected, until finally God said, that's enough. In fact, Stephen says, you even, he goes, you are just like your fathers. Your fathers persecuted and killed the prophets who wrote about the coming of the Holy One. Who's the Holy One or the Righteous One? That's the Messiah. What did they do to Isaiah? Sawed him in half. He's the one who had the most to say about Messiah, and they sawed him in half. Why? Because they were happier in their idolatry. And Stephen said, and you are worse because you, Sanhedrin, put to death the one that Isaiah spoke about. And so you give approval to what your fathers did. Not only are you not the righteous of Israel, you're the wicked in Israel because you are stiff-necked with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now, son, that will preach, okay? These people were um, offended as putting it mildly, right? Uh, They got up in arms over this. They basically said, how dare you? 
Because Stephen is telling them, just like your forefathers rejected God, you're rejecting God right now. And you need to be judged just like they were. And if you want to escape judgment, embrace Messiah. And so it says, when they heard this, this is the martyrdom. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up at heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, his message did not win people over. This was not a Dale Carnegie seminar on how to win friends and influence people. He criticized everything there was to criticize about them. To a point that they were furious with him and they drug him outside the city to kill him. And I want you to see several parallels between Stephen and Jesus. Because Luke means for them to be there. Remember, Luke wrote one of the Gospels and he explicitly draws a parallel here between Stephen and Jesus. First one is, where did they die? Outside the city. The writer of the Hebrews even makes a point of that, but it's outside the city. It was outside the camp in the, when Israel was in the desert that the refuse and the garbage was to be burned and where you were to go to the bathroom was outside the camp. It was where the junk went. And so when you were going to execute somebody, you take them outside the camp. And the writer of the Hebrews chapter 13 says, let us go to Jesus outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Why is it important that he's outside the city? Because they're treating him as garbage. Just like they did Jesus. And then notice how Stephen prays. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. How did Jesus pray? Father, into my hands, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He addresses his to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. Notice the last thing he says. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who else prayed like that? Jesus did. Only what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Right? Stephen dies just like Jesus, preaching a message to answer charges that were leveled against him that were just like the ones they leveled against Jesus. And it mentions that Saul is there giving approval to his death, leading the charge. In fact, there's a lot of people who think that the reason that they put the coats at his feet is because he's the one who's overseeing the execution, making sure it gets done right. Now, when you read this passage, um, this is a hard passage to know exactly how this relates in some sense to us and our situation in life. I've never preached a message where I thought, you know, there's a good chance I'm going to get made into a rock pile at the end of this. Okay. That's never happened. Um, Stephen was preaching for his life. But I do think as I as I look at this, that uh, there are two things that jump out at me. Number one, that Stephen had great confidence about where he was going. He had great confidence about where he was going. That when the final rock hit and he went unconscious and then the world went dark, he knew into whose presence he was going. 
In fact, God was so gracious to him, he looked up to heaven and he could see the Lord on his feet. Ready to receive him into glory. I think that's amazing. That Jesus stands to receive his saint. And he knew where he was going. And he knew where his hope dwelt. And God stood up to welcome. And my encouragement to you today, if you do not know where you will go, if something happens to you, with all the love of Christ, let me invite you and encourage you to not let the day go by without settling that question and place your faith in Jesus Christ in whom alone is salvation so that when you get to the end of your life, there's not a question. And when the last beep of the heart machine stops and you flatline, or the airbag doesn't deploy and you go into glory, that you find yourself going into glory and Jesus standing to greet you. Here's the other thing for, for us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Think about the ways that we reject God, just like they did. God gives us a command and we say, uh, I'm not listening, you know, like a little kid. I've got little kids, I know how this works, right? They put their hands in their, or over their ears or they start shouting and talking over you. I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. And, and we do that with God sometimes. God calls us to obedience on a variety of things. On purity in our speech and our thought and our conduct. And we go, yeah, that's just not me. I'm not doing that. I'm going to leave that one out. He calls us to reach the world with the gospel. And we think, yeah, that's somebody else's job. Calls us maybe to go overseas and share the gospel with people who've never heard it. And we decide instead we're going to give atonement money to a missionary. For the fact that we didn't obey. And there's all kinds of ways that we reject God. And, and what he wants to do through us and in us. And, and as I said earlier, you know, I, <laughs> I, go, I, I look at Abraham and go, well, I would never do that. Yeah, 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 you would, and you've done it. I've done it. And he, we've either been slow to obey or we have just outright been disobedient on all kinds of things. I've done it and you've done it. And thankfully, God is gracious to us and he loves us. And in spite of the fact that, that I'm an idiot and so are you, <laughs> when it comes to obeying God, he still, because we are his children, loves us. And in spite of all the things that, that we might not like about ourselves or about one another, God loves us and he's gracious to us. And even when we reject him, he doesn't reject us. But he calls us back, says, Jesus, my son, come home. My daughter, come home. Obey me. Experience my blessing. Let's pray.